Hello, welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey, I'm the lead pastor, um, and if you have been here for the first time in the last couple weeks, um, I have not met you and you have not met me, um, because for the last two weeks, um, me and my family have been sick and kind of shut down with life and stuck inside of our home. I, in fact, I told my wife, because kind of COVID got into our home, and I told my wife at one point, hey, if you walk into the bedroom, and literally the sheets have been tied together in a rope and draped out the window. I was like, don't even come looking for me. I'll come home. Don't worry. But like after about day seven or eight, you start to kind of twitch a little bit because you've read the internet, you've finished it, you've um, pretty much watched any and everything uh, that you could ever watch on demand because even though there's a million things that you could stream, you realize there's like five or six that you actually want to see. And so... Coming out of the last two weeks, I was so pumped this morning. Our family is like, we get to go to church because it's been two weeks and we're so thrilled. So what was probably the most encouraging thing, though, for me was being gone two weeks, uh, this church didn't stop, right, which is what I love about church. The church is not built on a person outside of Jesus. The church is not built on me. It is a collection. It is a we. It's a people. And that people, this people called Encounter Church was really busy over the last couple weeks. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the cool things, uh, we had our first women's night. Over 40 women showed up at that event. It was an incredibly powerful night. I've heard stories um, from so many of you who went and experienced and just um, was so thrilled. One of Some of our best friends in the world flew in. We didn't even get to see them or hang out with them and known them for over, since college. I mean, absolutely loved them both and never got to physically see them. It was like the saddest thing for us, but it was so awesome for you because I heard how God used um, Katie and um, the women's event. And then for those who were here two weeks ago on the Sunday, Josh and Katie's story was so powerful. And I appreciated the vulnerability because Jenny and I had front row seats to their storyline. And what I've seen over the last 20 years is amazing. And that no matter where you are, what you feel like you're stuck in, um, their story was meant to inspire you that God's not done. I mean, Katie was brutally honest, um, appropriately honest, when she's like, I wasn't sure I loved them anymore. And, I mean, as, as a friend watching them navigate this, there were times where you're like, is this going to happen? Is this going to make it? Because you just didn't know. And to see them on the other side more in love with each other, like their, their marriage is so much stronger than it ever was, even in the years that we would have called it strong. So I, I hope that that inspired you if you were here two weeks ago, to kind of kick off this series because I think their story is a perfect picture for no matter where you are, what you've, how stuck you may feel, there is another side to your story. And, um, and there is a God who's bigger than the stuck place that you find yourself, whether that's romantic, whether that's relationally with your child, whether that's financially, or whether that's professionally, that he's bigger than the stuck place that feels so big right now. But um, then this past Sunday, I was, you know, had my, like, uh, capture video recorded and um, just welcomed you and told you about us sending out the email for the egg drop, which is something that this church has done. We believe the church should be known for what it does for the community, not what it takes from it. That's why we create these community events. That's why, historically, we've been known and we've been intentional about how we invest, whether it was with Katie and us partnering with the ministry and the nonprofit she leads in Togo to help put a lady through college, or whether it's through what we did um, when 
what happened in Russia, Ukrainian, and that conflict. Um, we were able to send money to a relief agency, and this Wednesday I'm going to be a part of a group of people trying to collaborate. What does it look like for the church in New England to serve um, Ukrainian refugees who are going to find their, find their way here? Like We get to do that stuff because we as a church are generous. And um, so we emailed Sunday uh, and Sunday night, okay, so in 12 hours, here's what's crazy, less than 24 hours, it was really 12 hours, but I just wanted to be like, I'm so exacting that I was like, it was probably 13 and a half, but if I say 12, I'll feel like I'm lying, so I'm going to say less than 24 and be safe. In less than 24 hours, 5,000 people registered for the egg drop, okay? In a matter of just a couple of days, we were completely full with 8,000 people for the egg drop. We did not market this thing. We just emailed this thing out to an email list and people's excitement, people's reputation, this church's reputation, because I'd been fielding calls um, leading up to this moment where people were like, hey, I didn't have a kid two or three years ago, but we heard about your church. We heard about what you did for families. We have a kid now, and we just want to know, will our kid ever get to participate with this egg drop? I'm like, this is the weirdest conversation to have with someone. Like, when I dreamed about having a child, you were one of the things that I dreamed about. Like, this just feels awkward. But yes, you know what? Sign up for the email list, and you're going to get it this Sunday. And so over 8,000 people have signed up, which is incredible. And then what's even more amazing is that this event takes a lot of people to pull off, right? 8,000 people. Um, A helicopter, eggs, tens of thousands of eggs. Um, Some of you who are part of that team, you're sweating already because you know how many people it takes. And what's been encouraging is that um, we need over 100 people to volunteer to make this event happen. And um, I think as of right now, we're around like 60 plus people, right, which is extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is I know that some of you, right, online, on site, are not part of that 60, And so here's what I would like for you to do. I'd like for you to set aside an hour or two or three that day and be a part of this community expression. It's fun. We have two different hours, uh, two different events that day, and so it's going to be an incredible day. And what that means is your family can can come to one, have a lot of fun, and then put on the T-shirt and serve and make other people's days great too. So it's really, it's really a quick serving opportunity, but it's a high impact, really high volume return. So if you've got teenagers, right, like you've got uh, older elementary kids, um, maybe just whatever life stage, you've got friends, you've got family members who like being a part of community service stuff, I want to encourage you to sign them up too and be like, hey, just wanted to let you know, um, Aunt Becky, you've signed up to serve, and um, so I'm going to be picking you up that day because you're serving with me, all right? So feel free to sign up whoever you can force into and conscript into serving that day, counterchurch.com forward slash volunteer. So that's how busy you were over the last two weeks, and it is an honor and a privilege to be a part of pastoring a church who literally, when my wife and I shut down for two weeks, uh, this church didn't stop, and it just kept moving forward, and some of its exciting days happened while we were stuck inside of our house. And, um, but today what I want to do is kind of pick up on this idea of love dates and heartbreaks. And what I want to actually do is be really intentional over the next couple weeks and talk to you about 
how to influence the most important person in any relationship that you have. I want to give you some insight to how to leverage and to change and to maximize the difference you can have in the relationships. Because there is one person in the relationship that you can absolutely 100% change, and it's you. Oftentimes, when we think about relationships, we think about the other person. We think about, well, if they did this, or if they learned how to load a dishwasher, or if they weren't so snarky and cutting, if my boss only got fill-in-the-blank, if my kids only listened to X, Y, and Z, And in the course of complaining, in the course of criticizing, we miss there is one person inherent in that conversation that you have 100% control over. Because the thing about relationships that are frustrating is that you can't control them. I have a two-year-old who frequently reminds me of how little control I have over another human being. And I can get insanely discouraged with that two-year-old wondering if we need to send him off to military school, at what point can you begin to identify a sociopath? Like, I can easily fixate on that. Or I can look in the mirror and say, you know what? I can change me. I can make a difference with me. And while this is no guarantee it's going to fix whatever broken relationship you're engaged in, I will say this is a huge key because when we think about the person we're looking for, whether it's romantic whether it's, um, whether it's in the professional career with a type of person that we w- want to work in our firm or hire as a teacher or, you know, partner up with in a business venture. When we think about that person and what we're looking for, one of the great leverage points is to become the person, the person you're looking for is looking for. You can't control what's out there, but you can become the person The person you're looking for is looking for. And what that does is increases the chances that you'll find each other. And over the next couple weeks, I want to help you and help me journey more effectively into becoming the person that you're looking for is looking for. And to do so, I want to introduce you to a passage that's really brief, that's really succinct, and in some ways serves as a test. It's the first test on the journey. In some ways, it's a lot like uh, those Disney princess tests, you know, the BuzzFeed things, where just with a a few simple questions, you can instantly identify which Disney princess you are. Like these things that just promise to give you so much clarity. In fact, I took one, and it told me I was Cinderella, and I was so mad because I am totally not a Cinderella. I am a Belle, and I know I'm a Belle. And so I was a little offended because even some of those tests sometimes don't fully capture who we are. Right? Did you know that Belle, random factoids for you, when Belle, when, you walk, when she walks through the village, she's the only person wearing blue, and it's because they wanted it to represent how she was a little different than the rest of the town. And when she meets Beast, Beast is also wearing blue on purpose because they were with color trying to convey that they were made for each other. I mean, goosebumps right now. Come on, people. Like, I'm totally Belle. I'm not Cinderella. Anyways, so like this is a test that helps you capture This simple passage here can give you a test that instantly can help us figure out the journey to become the person we're looking for is looking for. Um, In Proverbs 9, 7 through 9, Solomon, who's one of the wisest persons to have ever lived on planet Earth, um, teaching his children 
says this to them one day. He says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. What Solomon does here is very subtle, but it's actually really profound. When most of us think about wisdom, when most of us do word association and describe what we think wise is, oftentimes wisdom looks like this, right? We think about wisdom the way we think about Yoda and how Yoda would say something profound that would unlock the journey for Luke. We think about wisdom as a pithy saying, as a quotable, tweetable moment. We think about wisdom by what's being said. But in this passage, what Solomon does is not talk, he doesn't describe wisdom's litmus test by what you say. He describes wisdom's litmus test by how well you listen, right? In fact, he does it by breaking it into two different things. He says, whoever corrects a mocker. So he uses this word mocker frequently. That's not a word that you probably use this week with someone. You're like, look at that mocker, right? Like that's kind of a weird phrase. A mocker is synonymous in the book of Proverbs with the word fool. So fool and mocker are, are synonyms for each other in the book of Proverbs. And so he's saying a fool if you correct the fool, you invite insult. And one of the things, he says, whoever rebukes the wicked, again, synonymous. You have to memorize, uh, you have to realize that when Solomon was teaching his children, um, he would choose in the original language, not, it was not English, he would choose words that would have um, easy memorability. And so he would intentionally do word choices that would sound similar. So some of this passage, we can even miss it. Um, by the way that he's structuring. There's so much like Hebrew structure in this thing to really enforce the lesson. But he uses the word corrects and rebukes. And I think one of the things that's helpful to know in this passage is that when we think about rebuking someone or that word, it kind of has some teeth to it, like it's being mean. And Solomon's not describing being mean to someone. He's not describing interacting with someone and you give them something. You kind of let them have it. He's not describing a response that makes you feel better because you got something off your chest. He's describing a response that was for them to be better, which is different. He's not describing being mean. He's describing saying something because you're being meaningful for their life. You're trying to help them. This correction, this rebuking, this instructing is love. Right? The same reason that I would tell my son not to run into the road. It's not because I want him to be robbed of one of the best bouncy surfaces for his ball. It's that I want to protect him because I love him. And so this idea of correcting and rebuking comes from a place of love. So I don't want you to hear mean. I want you to hear meaningful, intentional. He says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. So this first half of the passage is like there's this person, this fool, and the way you will instantly recognize them is not even by what they say. It's about how they respond to you and when you say something. They'll insult you. They'll attack you. They'll get defensive on you. They deflect they dodge. 
the first instinct is to pull out a sword because they feel attacked. It's like one of the ways that you recognize a fool is how they respond to you. In fact, I think you could say it this way, a fool makes you pay for what you say. We all have felt what it's like to be on the other end of someone making us pay for something we've said to them. Something that we said out of love, something that we said because it was for their good, and then what did you get in the moment? You had to pay for it. Maybe it was verbal, maybe it's physical, maybe it was manipulative in the way that they orchestrated a workplace environment around you. Maybe it was that they gave you a cold shoulder and they just didn't talk to you for the rest of the day. Maybe they're more, a little bit more passive-aggressive, a little bit more um, sneaky, and so they're talking to other people about you. But they make you pay for it. And all of us, at a certain point, we, we reach our limit and we refuse to go into debt anymore. And we stop talking. We stop saying. Because we get tired of paying. And this is one of the instant litmus tests for are you dealing with someone who is wise? How do they respond? Do they make you pay for what you say? And then there's this other one. So you've got the fool. And then he says, rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. It's like, hey, there's a whole other group of people. There's a whole other set of people that when you speak to them, they don't deflect. They reflect on what you say. They listen. They add to their learning. That They actually grow in respect for you because you were willing to say something hard to them. A whole different response. And the assumption behind both of these is that Solomon is saying, you've said one thing, and the way you said this one thing is coming at you two different ways. This one statement with the fool, you're attacked for it. This one statement with the wise, you're loved for it. And that the wise will actually reflect. Now, here's the thing. This doesn't mean that wise people are gullible and naive and take everyone's advice. It doesn't mean wise people are following through the internet and the YouTube thing says, hey, you got $1,000, you want to turn it into a million, click here. Wise people aren't clicking on those things. It's not gullibility. It's that the wise understand something very simple that's very true about broken clocks. That even broken clocks are right twice a day. Even someone who has no clue still has a clue about something. And that they have a perspective and an insight that actually might be helpful for you. And so a wise person will listen and absorb. And they're sifting and they're sorting. But they recognize that in this world, oftentimes the default response that we get is people make us pay for what we say. And what the wise recognize is if you make people pay for what you say too long, they'll stop saying it. And that they don't want to do that. They have a, a really terrified, holy fear. And so they recognize, you know what, this may be a broken clock, but this may be one of the times they're right. 
So I'm going to let it in, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to reflect. Um, so this is a civet. Um, civets are actually part of this ecosystem that is behind the most expensive coffee in the world. Kopi Luwak, I think is how you say it. Um, it costs anywhere from $35 to $100 a cup. It's incredibly expensive coffee. The reason why it's so expensive is this cat will eat the coffee beans and will deposit said coffee beans. Um, and those deposits will be picked up. And because of the cat's intestinal system, it will have done some work on the bean to change the flavor and to help begin to kind of introduce some chemical processes. And this cat and this coffee is the reason that this coffee is the most expensive in the world. $100 a cup, which is crazy. But I have actually had more expensive coffee than this. See, one time, you may not know about this about me, but um, and so like, I have a huge passion for entrepreneurs and startups and helping people start strong. Um, I, I speak outside of the church circle, out, outside of the stage, around entrepreneuring and how to kind of, you know, fundraise and how to build business plans and put this stuff together like I really like it, really can wrap my head around it, enjoy market research, all that stuff. And so I had a um, kind of a mentor of mine ask me um, because he had done a first pass on an individual and kind of had some initial responses that were like, ah, I'm going to pass on this guy. But we had a mutual friend who was like, don't pass on him. I think he's the real deal. You should talk to him. And so um, this mentor of mine reached out and said, hey, I've already passed on this guy, but, you know, this friend of ours, he really, really um, believes in him and thinks he's a good investment. So would you, would you do a pass for me? Would you just take him to coffee and um, have a conversation? And I said, sure. And so I, I knew the hesitation that the investor had, and so I sit down with him, and I designed the perfect question to figure out whether or not this guy was um, coachable because that was the, the key piece that we we're trying to figure out. Is he coachable? So I sit down with him. I've identified the part of his plan that's the weakest, that was obviously the weakest. It was so crystal clear that this is the weakest part of your plan. And so that was the question I had for him was around that part. And I recommended one simple thing that he could do that would change it. And I was like, okay, if he responds to this and implements it, then I'll know. Perfect. I was using Proverbs in, in play in, in the course of this conversation. And when I brought it up, the response was not what I wanted it to be because I was rooting and cheering for this guy too. Um, it was the exact opposite. And so we finished up our cup of coffee, and I said thanks and really enjoyed our, you know, really wish you the best. And I got in my car, and I made the phone call, and I said, hey, Man, I, I really don't want this to be true, but I pushed into this one area that you and I both know was the weakest part of the plan. And, um, like, this wasn't an opinion. Like, it was just so crystal clear. And um, he didn't respond to it the way I hoped he would. So I've got to tell you, I think you should pass. And what was sad was I drove away that day. And what that guy on the other side of the coffee table did not realize was what he was saying no to by the way he responded to that question was over $3 million in an investment. Like over $3 million in a huge network of other investors that 
that my mentor was wanting to open the door for. And what was terrifying for me is, oh my goodness, that guy doesn't even know that that day, $3 million was on the table in that coffee shop. Doesn't even know it. Because he didn't listen. And because he didn't listen, I mean, he could have just simply said, that's a really good point, let me think about it. But he didn't even do that. He made it really clear where he stood on that. And what was terrifying for me was like, how many times have I been him and not even known it? Because here's the reality. If you think you are done growing, then you are. If you think you are done growing as a parent, you are. If you think you are done growing as a spouse, you are. If you think you're, doing, you're done growing in your professional career, you are. Period. And you won't even notice, and you won't even know that you're not. And I... Uh, walk away from that moment, and I'm like, I don't want to be on the other side. I never want to be in that position. And that what Solomon is trying to do in preparing his children for influencing the government and for kind of ruling a nation is he's like, I want you to have a posture that's not okay with being okay, that's not okay with just having an okay government, an okay marriage, an okay parenting, an okay professional career, you're not, that, that you're not in a place where you're, you're looking around and you're just done growing. Because if you ever are, you are. Never want to get you into a place where on paper it looks like you've got 10 years experience, but in reality you've got 10 one-year experiences because you keep bouncing around to different places and you keep doing your one year over and over in 10 different places. I guess because it's not okay. And what comes out of this, I think, is really two helpful questions that's really worth reflecting on. The first is, do you make people pay for what they say? Do you make people pay for what they say? One way of figuring that out is, when's the last time someone gave you unsolicited feedback? When, when is the last time somebody gave you solicited feedback because of a moment? How did you respond? Do you have people regularly who would feel free to speak into your life? Or do you make people pay for what they say? I, I think one of the powerful ways that you can do this in conversations is just by adding the simple phrase. I do this all the time with my children. I say, hey, look, I may be wrong about this. I might be wrong because I might be wrong. And that simple phrase gives people permission to maybe throw out to you how you might be wrong. You don't even have to believe you're going to be wrong. But if you just add that simple phrase, you'll find that people will start to say more to you because they won't feel like they're going to have to pay more if they say it because you've opened the door. And if you're really, really wanting to lean into it, is this question from Jeff Henderson, who's a business consultant, pastor, um, someone who's a, a part of a network that I'm a group of with a group of us uh, that meet together once a year. He, he asked the question like this, what's it like to be on the other side of me? 
which is a terrifying and humbling question to ask. Because we all like me, we all think me has got it going on, we all think me knows what we know, and me walks into situations fully aware of what's going on. Me has the masters, me is the master, right? And we walk like horses with blinders through our life. And there's a whole group of people who are walking around you and me who see better, who see other sides of me that I don't even see. Right? The horse doesn't even know what its end looks like when it's walking down the road wearing the blinders. And yet there are people behind you and behind me who all they see is a horse's end because they're following it. And it's worth asking the question. It's a humbling question. But what's it like to be on the other side of me? Well, what's it like to be on the other side of you? Well, you don't follow through sometimes. Or you don't come home like you said you would. Or you're not as attentive as I'd like you to be. Or you overspend our budget every month, but always have a good reason for why you did it. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Well, sometimes it feels really good and sometimes it feels really bad based on whatever you're saying to me in the moment. But if you think you're done growing, then you are. But if you're willing to ask this question, there is no limit to how far you can go. There's no limit to how far you can grow. Because it's, here's the secret. Some of us are afraid to ask because we're like, I don't want to upset the apple cart. Like, I don't want to introduce that reality into the situation or into my workplace or into my marriage. Like, I don't want to have to deal with that. It's like, no, you are, you are already in that reality. You just refuse to see it. The best thing that can happen is wide open, eyes open, and see what other people see. Because that's the only way you can actually do something about it. Well, I don't want to start that conversation in the workplace. That conversation's already happening. It's just not happening to you. It's happening between your employees. They're talking about it. They're just not telling you how controlling or manipulating or demanding or dehumanizing you are sometime to them. And so this question invites all kinds of of liberating, life-changing moments if you're open to growing and if you're open to becoming the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. So how do we foster this? Because the reality is, is that it all sounds really good, nice, and easy. But how do you and I actually lean into this? And I would say if you are a Christian, this is an automatic for you. That you just need to start to act in line with who you already are. Here's what I mean. So he continues, Proverbs 9, verse 10. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you, and if you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. So at first you can feel like, oh, Solomon's taking a turn and going off on this other conversation because now he's talking about the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Like, I don't even know what that means. 
But then he pivots and he goes back into this discussion around the wisdom and the mocker piece. This is actually in the Hebrew structure, if you wanted to learn a, a really large word, it's called um, chiasm. It's a chiastic structure that he's actually made a sandwich is essentially what that is. He's put some meat in the middle of these two breads that's really important. And when he says the fear of the Lord, that's a phrase that for some of us, maybe if you grew up in church, you have this idea of God with a lightning bolt or this really kind of angry waiting to like punish you in hellfire kind of image. That's not what the Hebrew phrase fear of the Lord meant. It wasn't what it was invoking. Fear of the Lord was this idea of, of understanding how massive and majestic and holy and big he is. It's a reverence, it's an awe, and there's an element of fear in that. If you've ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, there should be a little bit of fear inside of you because you see how big it is. If you've ever been in the presence, you've ever gone on a safari and you're around a really large animal, you should have a little bit of fear in you because you realize you're dealing with something that's bigger, stronger than you are. Right? If you ever, in the middle of some type of military engagement, there should be some like, oh my goodness, these are big things. And the idea the Hebrews had was like, God is so much bigger and there's this sense that should come with that, an awe and a reverence and a recognition and what ultimately flourishes in that is a perspective of who he is. And as Christians, a recognition of who he says we are too. There's this outer working of perspective that flows into our life, not just of him, but of ourselves. Because as Christians, if you're a Christ follower, the only way you become a Christ follower is you're not born into it. You don't get drugged into it. Like me dragging you in the Fenway Park does not make, me, make you a Red Sox baseball player, right? And being drugged to church doesn't make you a Christian. It might make you bored if you're coming here listening to me. But it doesn't make you a Christian. Right? What makes you a Christian is the recognition of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and your response to that. And so what has he done? Well, in his perfection, he served as a bridge to, to, to bring reconciliation between you who were distant and, and him who was drawing near. Like the idea that, you know, just... How, how much toilet water would you be willing to tolerate in a gallon of water that you drink? A drop? A milliliter? A speck? Some scientific term that's even smaller than all those? How much toilet water would you tolerate in your drinking water? Right? Because God is holy and perfect. It cannot be holy and perfect. In the presence, like his holiness and his perfection has an effect when it's in the presence of the imperfect. And so there is a separation, something that we, we do intuitively. When my son gets in trouble, when he does something wrong, I've never had to sit him down and explain to him, hey, here, buddy, I want to teach you today's lesson is disobedience. All right, so I want you to listen really careful because I know this is a struggle for you. I want you to listen to me repeat a phrase over and over and louder and louder and still not do it. 
And if you could maybe add some swagger as you do the exact opposite of what I'm asking you to do, that would be like the bonus lesson for the day. So let's just practice that. Like just, I want you to be even more confidently committed to the thing I don't want you to do. I never had to teach my son that. But what I also didn't have to teach my son is after those moments when the recognition that he's done wrong hits him, his instinct is to not want to look. Not want to see, he wants to retreat, pull away, look down. We do it, right? In moments when we mess up, we want to do this. We want to pull away. In our own relationships, when there's something that's been done, even if you're physically present, you can be relationally separated. And there's a distance in your relationship. This is all playing out at the cosmic level, the divine level, just in the same way it plays out in the human level, too. And so there was a distance between us and God. His holiness, his righteousness, we knew in our perfection we can't even be in his presence. So what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and lives as the perfect sacrifice, never commits any sin, never does anything wrong, so that he can die on a cross, fulfilling this ancient Jewish sacrificial system that allowed him to pay for the punishment that we could never pay for. Because intuitively, we recognize that there is, in the sense of justice, there is a payment that's required. Why, do we, why is there sentencing when someone commits a crime? It's because sometimes wrongly, sometimes arbitrarily, but the seed of the idea is that, well, they should pay, essentially, the societal level of time out. We're going to stick you over here and you don't get to participate with society. And that's how you're going to pay for what you've done, is separation. And Jesus comes and pays for us so that we can be restored to him. Now, here's the genius. You don't even have to believe that. But if you're a Christian, you do. And not only do you believe it, you've built your life on it. And here's why I think Christians should be the best people to give feedback to. Because to be a Christian... To, to, to co-sign everything I've just said means you know you are not perfect. You know that you do not have it all figured out. You know that your stuff ain't the best stuff. And you ain't all of that. You know it. And so when someone walks into the room and tells you that, you're not surprised. You're not like, what? You're like, yep. I know, and I used to be even worse, right? When someone comes in and they're like, do you know how egocentric and arrogant you were back there? You're like, oh, my goodness, do you know how arrogant I used to be? I know I was arrogant then. Yeah, I own it. Man, sometimes ego in me gets really big. I am sorry I was wrong. I'm convinced that the secret to most relationships is the ability to let that phrase flow freely. I was wrong. I'm sorry. But a lot of times in relationships, what do we do? We say, hey, I'm sorry that hurt your feelings. I'm sorry that offended you. That is not the same thing as I am sorry that was wrong. That was, something is wrong with you. You need to 
focus and fix you? That's like a false apology. It's not sincere. And as Christians, we don't have to worry about ego and protecting and, you know, like we live in a culture that tries to look like we're perfect. And isn't that exhausting? I told you a few, I think it was like a couple months ago, Jenny was walking through and there was this woman trying to take like the perfect picture of their child on the tree and it, like this like perfect picnic day. And then after the pictures were taken, she was like just lamb blasting the child, completely demoralizing the child with the words she was saying. But the, the Instagram feed was perfect. Instagram feed, oh man, that picnic was off the hook. It was a great picnic that day. But what actually happened was that kid had a little bit of her dignity taken from her in the way the mom ripped her down. And we, Being perfect is exhausting, but you can't even do it. You're not even good at it. And so Christians don't have to be messed up. Like, I'm messed up. I am a hot mess. But you know what? Because, because of Jesus, I'm not just a hot mess. I'm his holy mess. Like, I'm free, and I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I'm set free. I'm not chained by shame and guilt. I can name the screw-ups in my life because they don't define me and describe me the way they used to. I can walk a little bit lighter because I'm not carrying that load of being the perfect parent. So when I say to my daughter, babe, I'm so sorry, daddy was wrong. I'm giving her one of the most perfect gifts I'm letting her see that, like, here I am, this authority figure who's supposed to have it everything figured out. And I very quickly realized that all parents lied growing up because I became one and realized I don't have a clue what I am doing. I am making this thing up on the fly. And if you have two of them, you throw out everything you did on the first one, and you make it up on the fly again with the second one. And I'm like, hey, sweetie, you know how you're new to being 10? Daddy's new to being a parent of a 10-year-old who's you. But let's figure this out together. And when people know you might be wrong, it's a whole lot easier for the relationship to stay right. And there's a freedom that comes when you know you've bent your knee at the cross and you've said to the world, hey, I'm a Christian, which means I'm not perfect. He is. I'm screwed up. He stepped in. I'm a hot mess, but I'm his holy mess. It just gives us a freedom that others don't have. And it gives us a way of stepping into relationships to stepping into professional, romantic, parenting, fill in the blank. It allows us to step in and actually be freed to become the person, the person we're looking for is looking for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the freedom, for the power of the cross. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you that this isn't just some religious notion, that this is real and transforming and life-giving, that this brings freedom and actually removes chains of shame and guilt and condemnation. God, I pray that we would be people who are 
people who respond with humility. That we would be people who in wisdom walk and listen and learn. That we wouldn't have reputations of being people who make people pay for what they say. That we'd have reputations for being people who are better today than we were yesterday because we're willing to listen and to respond to what people say. So give us the courage to walk in that wisdom, to move towards becoming the person, the person we're looking for is looking for. And Jesus, thank you for the cross, for your grace and your mercy. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want to thank you so much.